0: Kids are invited to kids' church. And I ended up with something from Rosie's safety band, so that you don't get hit by a car while biking. God knows what I have. There's a metaphor here. <laughs> God is our safety. Protects <laughs> us on the roads of life. <laughs> Yes, there are some of you who want more of that from me, and for some of you, that was like, that's enough. We never do that again. Um, and I don't know how to handle that personally as your pastor, because I want you to like me. Um, no, we are so weak. Um, this begins our second Sunday in the Psalms of Ascent. Last Sunday, we did Psalm 120. This Sunday we did Psalm 21. Now, Don and both David and Don both came up to me afterwards and, and talked about what is it? You're you're trying to advocate, and I am trying to advocate, for us to gather our prayers into the Psalter, to bring, to sort of have the language of our prayers come out of the Psalms. So if you remember this line from, from last week with Martin Luther, um, he says, Whoever begins to pray the psalms earnestly and regularly will soon take leave of those other light and personal little <coughs> devotional prayers and say, Ah, uh, there, is, there is not the juice, the strength, the passion, the fire which you find in the Psalms. Anything else tastes too cold and too hard. The Pope, one of the things that Don asked is, is so if you're going to tell me, and, and Luther is going to tell me more importantly than you, uh, to pray the Psalms, uh, which one are you doing next week? And so it's, it's pretty easy to figure out at this point, is you can either pray them going away from the sermon and sort of reflect on it, which would be doing Psalm 121 this coming week, or if you wanna pray in advance of the sermon, the psalm that's coming, you would just add one. So Psalm 122 next week. Now there's not enough weeks between now and Advent to hit them all individually, so they will get combined at some point, and I'll try to alert you if you're one who's praying through them with us. but. But this is our sort of second Sunday in that time of sort of growing in our prayers and the psalms and sort of moving up in this ascent, too. So these psalms, beginning in 120, go all the way to 134. And they're this pilgrim song, this, this people on a journey that sort of are moving towards the temple of God. We sang this morning, we will feast in the house of Zion. These are the people heading to that place where they think, the truth will reside, and shalom will be unleashed, peace will be unleashed upon the earth." They're looking towards God, and they're looking towards that place. And so we're walking these songs, and we're praying these songs, and, and there's multiple ways to think about this, even within the book itself. Because really, what the, the pilgrim is doing physically, ascending to Zion, ascending to Jerusalem, moving up, they're also doing it in their soul. Now as Christians, and and funny enough, as as Jews for the most part, they're called out as a pilgrim people. We used this phrase from last week from Tolkien that not all who wander are lost, that there are people who sort of move about the earth, but they have sort of this vision of who God is. And so in our tradition, in the Christian tradition, without Jerusalem as that goal, it becomes clear that it's our souls, our hearts ascent to God. Now before we go too far with that image, it's only possible because Christ descends to us from the right hand of the Father. So this is no works-based praying in the Psalms that says, I will bring my soul into the presence of God merely by myself through these prayers. But it said, because God has descended to us, because God has made residency in the world, in Jesus, and if you're thinking of this literally in the Psalms, in Jerusalem, so too it's enabled for us to bring our souls and bring our hearts up to God. But this is sort of the journey that Pilgrim Path we walk as we ascend into God's place. And this is part of what we're sort of holding out as the theme as we walk through the Psalms. Now I'm using this, this time as a quote, or as a time to sort of make the argument for the Psalms being a more robust part of our lives individually. As you know, many of us, as many of us know, we begin every sermon or every Sunday here with a reading from the Book of Psalms. It's the language that we use back to God. And the thing I love about this language is it goes in a, in a registry that's often beyond what we have. It goes to the darkest depths, the lowest lows, anger, frustration, smite my enemies, um, take me from darkness, Lo, I'm in the pit, come and rescue me. It goes all the way to the deepest of human emotions. And yet, also, it raises up to the highest praises. God is glorious. God is one that I need. I praise the Lord. praise the Lord. praise the Lord as one. God's love endures forever. One of the things that I find as a Christian myself is that I live my life in a very small registry. Like, there's, like, only so sad I'll allow myself to be with God, and there's only so happy I'll allow myself to be with God. And I think it's it's the psalms that help correct that. To say that if you're feeling low, if you're feeling um, upset, if you're feeling angry, or alone, depressed, or surrounded by enemies, there's language that you can use to go to the extreme in that. And if you're feeling uplifted, if the world is right, if the sun is shining bright on you, then there's language that reflects that as well. Now, it's interesting, we talked about D.J. Bonhoeffer a little last week. He says that if you're feeling the first one, you should pray the psalms of the bottom one, uh, the lower, the, the, the angst emotions. And if you're feeling the lower one, you should pray the psalms of the higher one to lift yourself up. I think he was talking to people who already knew the psalms, so maybe they can practice dislocation that way. I think for us it might be just to get into them, to let those emotions take registry in us. Our society, our world doesn't like, or, or North Americans, if you're really, really happy, um, you're, there's no sinning in the rain anymore. Keep it to yourself. Um, you can be happy, but not that happy. Um, and then if you're really, really sad, um, you overwhelm people so easily that we want you to sort of back off. I think for Christians, for people of the Psalms, it's our it's our duty and our ability to find both because God can hear and wants us to be in both and to be honest with our lives, to, to sort of tell the truth in a way. And so the quote on um, the back of today's bulletin, this is a log preamble to that, is from Stanley Harawas, and he says, a social order bent on producing wealth as an end in itself cannot avoid the constitution of a people whose souls are superficial and whose daily life is captured by sentimentalities. They will ask questions like, why does a good God let bad things happen to good people? Such people cannot imagine that a people once existed who prayed and sang the psalms. If we learn to say God, we will do so with the prayer, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quote from Psalm 22, which we're familiar with because it's Jesus' word on the cross, and so why do good things happen to bad people? It becomes a little bit of a different question when you know the story of the psalms where good people will often pray, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you hid your presence from me? Why have you turned from me? That, that to expand our lives to sort of know God in a different way is part of the challenge. So that's today's sort of advertisement for praying the Psalms. Let's jump into Psalm 121. <laughs> um, Psalm 21 is this uh, second Psalm of Ascent. and We talked last week on how Psalm 120 sort of sets us on this path of repentance. I've seen a world in which it is surrounded by lies, in which lies govern the day, in which there is no truth, and it's hard to tell fact from fiction, and the news is overwhelmed with lies, and my life is overwhelmed with lies, and what is the truth? I dwell in this violent place, is what it says in Psalm 120, and so this is the psalm that sort of sets out this journey. I'm for peace, the psalmist says. See, in English, it's actually, I am (laughs) peace, Which is a boldness that I don't have. Um, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And so this is the psalmist in this world of trouble and challenge. And so if you if you're thinking about this as this sort of literal journey that starts in 120, this is what sets that up. I'm turning away from this path and I'm moving to this other path. I'm ascending to this place. I'm going to God's temple and seeking that peace. And this is sort of the path the psalmist sets on from the beginning. We talked a little bit last week about how repentance in this moment, and biblically often, is not a feeling. We often talk about repentance today as if it were a feeling. You feel like you should repent. But actually a decision, a wake up, a movement. The Greek word metanoia implies a U-turn, a turning around in life. That repentance has more than just saying that I, I feel sorry for these things, but actually that I'm taking a different path, I'm going a different way. So, this psalm, the second psalm in the Psalms of Ascent, um, sort of begins with a question. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? It's often when scripture asks questions, I I personally try to really think of them. For where does my help come from? There's There's a notion in me that our help comes from lots of different places. Uh, my brother and or my sister and brother-in-law were visiting last week, um, and they were a help with the kids. Um, there's a way in which I manufacture help in my life through uh, technology nowadays. Um, at our house we say Alexa <laughs> and you, she does something. I'm not that happy about that. Um, but uh, Alexa plays this music and she doesn't. there's help that comes in sort of technology today. There's help that comes interpersonally. There's help that comes from these powers on high, which we call sort of the medical industrial complex, and and other places. That these places, I have my my neurologist appointment in Denver this week. From where does my help come from? Modern medicine. From where does my help come from? Um, my insurance company, like for my car to get it repaired, like. That from where does my help come from? And I think a lot of my life, and this is what the psalm, I think, aims to correct, is meant to be like, there is God, and there is this beautiful Sunday liturgy, and there's this moment of God sort of reconciling and breaking into the world in Jesus Christ, and yet for my own personal life, that's not really something I can trust in. I need to make sure that there is as much safety around me, that I know where my help comes from almost all the time. It's almost, and this is like how we buffer our emotions from what I began with. We buffer ourselves to sort of not need this kind of help. It's not a surprise to know that someday that will fail. Um, Someday the help will run out that I've tried to protect myself from. So, the psalmist uh, says, I look to the mountains. Now, there's a couple ways to interpret this. I look to what is strong and permanent. Where does my help come from? There's another way in this ancient society to look at it is that most of their holy sites, that it makes sense, are on mountains. I look to the mountains. I look to the other religions. I look to the places where these gods might reside, the gods of harvest, the gods of uh, fertility, the gods of, 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 of water. I look to these mountains, because that's where my help might come from. They live in a multi-serve religious world, which I would argue we do, we just don't use religious language for it. I look to these places for my help. So the psalmist starts with this question, from where does my help come from? And the answer, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, is the second line. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And it's here we find this sort of, this reality of which God is this creator. He doesn't just create and leave. Now, we preached through the creed, uh, Easter season. Um, and you'll remember that I believe in God, will fi- the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. This psalm, I guess, is, is the second most familiar of the psalms after Psalm 23. But personally, I always think Psalm 51 is, and because of that song, created me a clean heart. And then Psalm 119 is, because thy was, so I have up to my feet, thank you, Amy Grant. So I always think those would be the two most familiar after Psalm 23. But I think for memorization and for personal piety, Psalm 121 sort of resides in that place. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth. It's a Profound statement. It's to say the one who made these things still resides in it, that God is your help. That God didn't just make and then go away, which I think is um, something that we have to confront within ourselves. And I've heard people say it this way. While theologically true, it's hard to sort of actually wrap my mind around, is that if God were to stop thinking of creation, if God was one who thought the way we did, uh, it would just disappear. That there's something about God through the Bible, which is the sustainer of it as a thing. Its foundations would fail without the God who holds it all together. The God radiates so near in this that it's it's something that it's close to us. To say where does my help come from, and to answer, my help comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. It's a profound statement. It's to say the one that is very near and to his creation. Now, I thought I'd add this in as a side note because political season is approaching, which is everybody's favorite season. Oh, and baseball season is everybody's favorite season. Um, everybody's like has been his help. Um, starts off with some weird analogy with a light thing. Um, I think it's a profound song for us to keep in mind as political season approaches. I think that there is this way in which, and certainly it's all of politics, promises we will be your help. It doesn't matter which party, which person. We will be the help that brings you peace and patience and and provides things, or or, or trying to avoid anybody's slogan as best as I can. Um, uh, And for Christians to know in this world, when when those things get ramped up as they do in a country that largely provides, resides in peace within its own borders and has grocery stores and electricity that runs almost all the time, which is, you know, things work really well here, but they want to amp up our anxieties to say, where is our help gonna come from? And I hope for us, as the people of defiance and as the Christians in this this part of the world, to say, politics does and can matter, and it's an important thing to consider, but I don't look to the mountains for this kind of help. I don't look to these parties for this kind of help. The help that we need, and the help that I will call out for someday for sure, is the help that comes from the maker of heaven and earth. I hope that check can help us not get lost in the moment. I don't think I've had many conversations with people here that that's the case, but such is such is the warning <laughs> uh, to say that this is a time as we get closer and closer to it, in which the promises will be made that I will be your help. I will be the restorer of good fortune. And if you vote for me, you won't need the maker of heaven and earth anymore, which is the real challenge of it. And so the psalm continues after that opening line. And the reason why, there's so much in that opening line that it's, um, you can think about that for a long time. I look to what is solid. I look to what is secure. I look around the world for signs of what help might be. But help comes from the maker. Help comes from the Lord of heaven and earth. This is the way that the psalmist cries out for us. But, but it begins to sort of ramp up in there. Now, if you're noticing in your Bibles, um, it's become apparent to me that maybe I should put more of the, the Bible up on the screen. If you have a Bible, it might help to follow along, particularly with the Psalms, especially once they are short, because we kind of just sort of walk through them in a lot of practical ways. Um, but it's, it continues that he will not let your foot slip. This is why we find this one probably in this pilgrimage section. What do we do when we go out? We walk. We move. What we do as a pilgrim people, we go out into the world. And what it says, uh, sorry, what this person says back to the first speaker is that he will not let the foot slip. And this is, where this psalm is intensely personal, and it's something you miss if you read it too fast, I lift my eyes up to the help. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And then it switches he. It's almost as if um, the first person, you can read it two ways. One is the first person asks a question. Everything else is a response to that question. that's just reading verse one. It seems like the psalm is set up more that I look to the mountains for my help. Um, Where does my help come from? My help comes from the maker. And then the other person fills in the rest. So, as you're setting out on this journey, this would be somebody who speaks to you peace as you begin to go. Or it might be something you say and say to each other as if you're passing each other. You look to the mountains from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So the second part is spoken by uh, the second speaker. Now most of the Old Testament and New Testament, even when it's singular, has this notion of, of the only way we say it in English is y'all. It's a singular plural. Uh, Susan, you probably know y'all. Can you translate for the rest of us? Y'all. Yeah, it means you all. So, singular and plural put together. Um, Western people don't speak that way. Um, uh, And Midwesterners, we learn the non regional accent. But it's this y'all phrase, which is normally used In most calls to holiness and movement throughout the Bible. Psalm 121 is this great exception. Is that it's very intensely personal. It's almost as if it's a two-person conversation. The reason why I bring that up is because most of us miss it in the other parts of the Bible, that it's speaking to a group of people, not individuals. The movement towards holiness is a y'all. But here, it's just two people. He will not let your foot slap. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. It begins with this small thing. This is this way the psalm moves up. You won't let your foot slip on the road. Certainly reassuring, but there might be greater problems than that in the world than slipping. So the first word of reassurance is this small thing. Surely he will not hear your foot slip. But then it moves to this never sleeping God, this God who is always awake and attentive, this God who doesn't fall to sleep on the job. Now, what's interesting about this is, is in the context the um, harvest gods, some some of them did fall asleep. They did go to bed during the time in which there wasn't a harvest. So proclaiming that this God doesn't sleep. This God is close to you, God is near to you, this God is with you in a way in which other gods are not. But even more so, there's this great scene with Elijah in the book of Kings. Um, and the 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 priests of a rival god are are attempting to sort of rouse their God, and, and Elijah says to them, maybe you should wake him up. Uh, it's this Israelite confidence that this is a God who never sleeps. Um, there's not a God to be roused here. There's a God that already is awake to where you are. And then this this Greek word um, for watches. If if you see watch or keep in your Bible, it refers, this is a short psalm. If this word appears six times in the short psalm. It's the word that's translated watch or keep. And so it begins right here, as he watches over you and will not slumber. Indeed, he watches twice right here, over Israel and neither slumber will sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The second sort of watching over contains the way in which God has shaved for you on this journey. Now this is true here, probably. Um, it wasn't true in the Northwest where it's like, shade is plentiful, it's always cloudy. Uh, you never worry about being harmed by the sun when I live there. But in the ancient Near East, to have the shade be on your journey is to have a peace and residing that goes with you. It's to have cover, to be able to move without being bombarded by the heat of day. What it says here is that this God is both the Lord over the sort of the sun and the moon, which is a weird addition. So the first is this protection from the heat, but the second is this protection from the evenings, too. Nor will the moon harm you by night? Now this is an odd one for us, because what does the moon do to harm you? There's first this parallelism that's becoming complete here. There's morning and there's night. So God is there with you the whole time. He is at your right hand, whether it's morning or night. But also in ancient societies, There was this notion in which you could go moon mad. um, That you would. uh, I don't know if this is true, but I did read it this week. Did not invent this. To blame somebody else. Lunatic, lunar, Like it it exists. Medical professionals are nodding. So, lunatic and lunar do go together. Um, And so there's this notion, even in our society, in the roots of the word, that the moon.